I'm your host, Erin Groves, and this is where your positivity journey starts. Welcome to the Pop Podcast. All right. Well, hey, 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 guys, and welcome back to the Pop Podcast. I am your host, Erin Groves, and here we are on another Monday and a very exciting episode and guest today. I know we talk a lot about on this podcast about entrepreneurship and business. And my sister came on and did an episode on mental health, which I know a lot of people resonated with. So I thought, why not bring on another fellow podcaster that I actually met through a podcast course I took? And she knows everything and has a great story about mental health. So Sadie Sutton, welcome to the Pop Podcast. Say hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Your story is something that a lot of people throughout the nation, especially with 2020, can resonate with. Your podcast has really taken off. And mental health is something that a lot of people don't talk about because I think it has a, a negative connotation. You're a prime example of someone that's taken their experiences and not having a victim mentality about it. How can I use my story to help other people? So I want you to start from the beginning. You were around the age of 16 when you were in intensive therapy for anxiety and depression. Take my audience and listeners back. What were the first signs of your mental state and how you knew it was time for you to go see someone and ask for help. Yeah, so it's interesting. I started the podcast on the very tail end of my treatment journey, like a month before I left. Um, and I was 16 at that point. But my treatment journey started a long, long, long time before that when I was 13, when I was hospitalized for the first time for severe depression. Um and I was one of those people. I was so young at that point. I was 13. And I think this is something that's very unique about adolescent mental health is that these things develop slowly over time. I was someone who didn't have some giant trauma. There was no big loss that I went through. So when I started having a really low mood and really bad self-esteem and struggling with sleep and relationships and diet, it was just my norm because it slowly, slowly, slowly built over time. Um, and I didn't remember anything different. And so I think with adolescence, it's a really dangerous spot to be in because you don't recognize that something has shifted. If you've been somewhat depressed your entire life, or if it's slowly been building for years and years and years. Um, so I talk about that a lot on the podcast, how that puts adolescents in a really unique position. You're also not fully biologically developed. So you are not fully able to ration and function through things. You're living a lot more from your emotional system, which is your amygdala. Your prefrontal cortex doesn't finishing developing until you're in your 20s. And so you're more prone to being emotional. You experience your emotions more strongly. Um, and that's kind of why I think everyone has that universal experience of like being a teenager sucks. Like that was a rough time in my life. Like anyone you talk to is like, oh, not, not looking back on that with all positive memories. And so it's something that a lot of people can, can resonate with. And I think it's why so many teens struggle with uh, mental health challenges is because you're really in a really vulnerable spot. Um, but when I look back at my journey and I think about when I started to feel depressed and when it was first kind of brought up to me that I was depressed, I can pinpoint a couple of belief systems that got me there. And this only comes from years of therapy and treatment and looking back and then shifting those belief systems that I was like, wow, this really led to me feeling more depressed. But in the moment, I was like, I feel terrible. I hate everything. Life sucks. And I don't know why. Um, but looking back, I, I know that I had this really deep core belief that I didn't deserve love. I had a deep core belief that I would never be good enough for my parents. I didn't think that I was deserving of being depressed because there was no reason I should be depressed. And I thought that I would be depressed for the rest of my life, that that was just how I was destined to be. I didn't remember anything different. Why would things change? I could understand that other people could live a life where they weren't depressed, but that just wasn't in the cards for me. So when you're operating through life with the view that you're not good enough and you're not deserving of love, you're really looking for circumstantial evidence to prove that to be true. And that's exactly what happened in every single interaction. So I just dug myself into a deeper and deeper hole of 
low self-esteem and being disconnected and feeling isolated and misunderstood. And the more I felt like I wasn't being seen or heard or validated or loved, the more I started to engage in different behaviors to try and get that need met, whether that was struggling with self-harm um, or becoming suicidal um, or really going through this whole intensive treatment journey. And so, like I mentioned, these belief systems developed very slowly over a very long period of time. And so I was at this point during my eighth grade year where I wasn't sleeping, I wasn't eating very well, all my relationships had fallen apart. And my mom knew something was wrong. I wasn't talking to anyone. And so she took me to the pediatrician and he asked me all these questions. He was like, do you have lower worsening mood? Have you lost interest in activities you used to enjoy? Like the typical depression questions. I remember crying because someone was finally putting a voice to what I was experiencing. It was all of these jumbled emotions and thoughts and odd interactions that I was having, but I'd never put a name to it. I'd never heard someone voice what it was that I was experiencing. And so that was a really powerful moment. And he said to me, so you're definitely really depressed. I can see that. And your mom has made a psychiatrist appointment for later today. And if you don't do that, you're going to spend some time in the hospital. Um, and that's not typical. I like to add that little um, disclaimer that if you go to a pediatrician and say you're feeling depressed, they're not going to be like hospital time. But I had been isolated and shut down for, for weeks, months at that point. I hadn't told anyone that I was feeling this way up until that point. And so it was a really dangerous spot to be in. And I was so physically numb to everything because of how depressed I was at that point. So I went to the psychiatrist appointment and those couple of days really are a blur. I don't remember them super intensively, but she asked me, can you draw a pie chart of your feelings? And I was like, sad, hopeless, everything sucks. Um, and I didn't speak for the entire appointment. And she decided that the best thing for me to do, because I was so shut down and isolated and I wasn't sharing with anyone what it was that I was experiencing was to spend some time at the hospital. So that was my first um, experience with intensive treatment. I was 13 and I was hospitalized for seven or 10 days for severe depression. And then the next year was really filled with a lot of the same. I was hospitalized four times before I went to intensive treatment for depression, anxiety, and suicidality. Um, I did outpatient. I did intensive outpatient. I did outpatient DBT. I did group therapy, family therapy. You name it. I tried it at home and nothing was really changing. My mood wasn't shifting. I still felt depressed. There was a lot of family dysfunction, a lot of conflict, a lot of unhealthy behaviors. And I was still really shut off as far as telling people how I was feeling. And so halfway through my freshman year, my parents really realized that things weren't working and things weren't changing and that they needed to get more support than we had at home. And so they did a ton of research and they found a residential therapy program that was right outside of Boston at McLean Hospital. And so I think this is a little funny tidbit, but if you've ever seen Girl Interrupted, that hospital is McLean Hospital. The, the author went to McLean years and years and years ago. It's changed a lot since then. Um, but that's the, that's the hospital that it's based off of. It's been around for hundreds of years. It used to be an asylum. So I remember Googling this and being like, where am I going? I was 14. I was terrified. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Um, and I, I didn't believe it was it would work. I was going into this. I was packing up all my belongings, ready to go to this four to six weeks of residential treatment because I had to, but not because I thought it would help me or because I wanted to change. It was just like, I'm being told this is my only option. I'm a kid. Will my parents say I do? Here we go. So we flew across the country and we got to this intake appointment. And there was a couple of questions that got asked there that still stick with me. First was my dad being like, Sadie, this is so inspirational. Think about how many teens struggle with mental health. This is such a great story. You should start a podcast. And I was like, no, mm -hmm. I was at like my lowest of lows. I was miserable. I blamed my parents for all of my problems. I was mortified. He asked me this in front of like 12 of my future doctors that I'd be living with. And I was like, dad, please stop. I'm not starting a podcast. And he was like, can she have a recording device here? And they were like, Sir, that is against HIPAA in like every way. This is a hospital. Like, no, she cannot have a recording device. Um, but that was the first seed that was kind of planted about the podcast um, way back in 2017 or 2018, a really long time ago. 
Um, but another question that one of the doctors asked me, and I actually had him on my podcast, um, like a year after I started it, which was a really full circle moment was if I wanted to be there. And I immediately was like, no, I, I have to be here. I've been told that this is what my next step is, but I don't want to be here. And he said, here's the thing, Sadie, you're the poster child for this program. We've seen hundreds of teenage girls that are struggling with depression and anxiety. And I get it that you think you're different, but you're not. <laughs> the evidence shows that DBT and dialectical behavioral therapy is a, a treatment that works really effectively for depression and anxiety and decreasing suicidality um, and helping you build your life worth living. So it's not going to work unless you see the wisdom in it. It's not going to work unless you trust us to help you and unless you want to get better. But it's you're not special in this one. Um, and that was really like a wake up call moment for me, because up until that point, I really was like, I'm the outlier. Like, it doesn't matter who is helping me, like it's not going to work. And so I was sitting in this room talking to 12 of the best clinicians in the country. McLean is a Harvard affiliated program. It's the best of the best program. And I was like, I get, I get that you guys are really specialized, but it's just not going to work. It's not going to, it's not going to help me. And so he was like, the doctor was like, you're going to have to think about this because this is a voluntary program. We don't take kids unless they, they want to get better and they believe they can get better. Um, and the other option is to go to somewhere where your parents can sign on a dotted line and you stay there for however long they, the program deems necessary. And that scared me a little bit. I was like, okay, I want to be here where I have the autonomy and control over my journey. But I was like, I'll think about it. So I went and watched The Bachelor. I ordered room service and I came back the next day and started treatment. Um, and it was the first time that I, I did cultivate the wisdom. I logically understood that the evidence said it would work. I had enough emotional, um, I was emotionally open to receiving treatment. I put enough, enough trust in these doctors and their competency and their experience to help me. Um, and I cultivated enough self-compassion to want to get better because my self-esteem was so shot at that point that I didn't even want a life that was good for myself. I didn't think I deserved that. And so that was the first time that I really shifted that mindset. And then from there, it was tons of group therapy and individual therapy, family therapy, all of the things that really helped shift my mood. Um, I stopped feeling depressed. I stopped feeling suicidal. I was able to understand my anxiety in a way that allowed me to cope with it and so I was at that program for 14 weeks. And after that, I went to a therapeutic boarding school for 14 months to kind of continue that progress. Um, and at the tail end of it, I had this moment where I was like, wow, what everyone said was true has happened. I'm not depressed. I'm no longer struggling. I'm living my life worth living. And it was really possible. And up until that point, I still was kind of skeptical. I was like, yeah, I get it. But like, it's probably not going to work. Um, but because I was so firm in the belief system that things would never change, when they did change, I was like, I have to tell people about this because of me, this person that so firmly believed that I would be depressed for the rest of my life and that I would never experience happiness is happy than anyone can do it, especially teens. And another thing that I noticed during my treatment journey was a huge lack of teenagers that were sharing that they had fully taken control of their mental health. They had shifted their mood around. They had completely changed their lives and telling other teens that it was possible. Tons of adults and doctors were like, yeah, it's, it's totally possible. You can change your life. You'll be happy. We promise. But that's kind of hard to resonate with and believe because they feel so far removed from where you're at. And so I wanted to add that to the narrative and I wanted to share what worked for me. And I really did recognize that everything went right in my journey. My parents were willing to drop everything, fly me across the country and get me the treatment that I needed. Um, I took my second semester of freshman year off for mental health treatment. I took a year and a half out of my life to dedicate to intensively working on my mental health. I had access to the best of the best clinicians um, therapy, doctors, coping skills. And I, I knew that that wasn't something that everyone had access to. And I knew that if I had access to these resources earlier on, I wouldn't have needed that level of care. And so that's another reason I started the podcast was to share those resources and make them more widely accessible. But everything really culminated when I realized that this 
idea of being better had come true. And I really wanted to share that with other teens. So I started by sharing my own story and talking about how I turned my life around and what treatment was like and interviewing my family and friends. And then it really became more of a, a well-rounded mental health resource, bringing on other clinicians and mental health experts to talk about what works and what doesn't and what advice they have and what tips you can implement at home. And so we're 80 episodes in now and three years out of um, treatment. And yeah. First off, I just want to say there's probably a lot of people listening to this that applaud you for being vulnerable enough at your age to tell a story and take what life has given you and turn it into an opportunity to help other people. And my podcast is all about positivity, overcoming adversity, dealing with fear, all the things. And I feel that positivity is a mindset shift. And it's crazy to think that you were someone at a young age of 13 with so much left of life to have. And you didn't, you couldn't see another side. And I don't know if I've ever shared this on my podcast either, but I had a, not a, as intense of you, but I had a similar story when I was in high school. I was a swimmer and lost swimming. I got injured and swimming was my identity. Sports, athletics, everything was who I was as a person. And I remember I was just devastated. I started gaining weight. I didn't want to be here. I mean, I was depressed as well. And I remember my mom walking into my room one day and I was just crying, crying, crying for days and weeks on end. And she's like, I'm taking you to the doctor. This is not who you are. And I remember my pediatrician said, asked those exact same questions. Yeah. And she was just asking like, do you want to like, do you feel like you're going to harm yourself? And all of these questions that get asked a lot. And I remember thinking that I would never take it to that extreme. But there were times that I was just like, what am I living for? Like the one thing that I thought was my identity, especially in high school where there's so many, it's just a challenge. You're developing so much. You don't know who you are. It's you, the universal terrible years. Everyone gets it. Yeah. And there's just so much growth, especially as a female, your hormones are changing. There's so many things going on. Being in high school is challenging. There's people that are mean. There's people that say mean things. It was just hard. But I remember, and she put me on medicine. And a lot of the reason that I am today and the reason that, you know, I have the mindset that I do was because of that journey. And I know what it's like, not to the extreme of you, to be in a place where you don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. You don't see life to be lived. You're just coming from a place of, just depression and everything is clouded. So as someone that's been in there, I resonate a lot with your story. And a question that I have for you that I know I felt as someone that was an athlete and kind of, I came from a family where no one would have expected that I would have had the things that happened. Yeah, There's a connotation of just snap out of it. You get told a lot that it's okay that you're feeling the way, but just snap out of it and move on. What do you think is your biggest piece of advice for people that are a in that period of their life and how to navigate that societal pressure that you just need to move on? Yeah. I first want to say something when you're telling your story and you kept saying, well, it's, it's not as bad as where you were at. I, whenever people say that and I'm like, no, but you get it. Like, I think mm -hmm. that the the ways that we present, whether it's with self-harm or suicidality or having to get treatment or having certain diagnoses, that's what really separates us. But I really subscribe to the dimensionalist perspective that depression, when we really boil it down, is an emotion. It's, it's a mm -hmm. biological signal that's telling us that something's not right here. Something needs to shift your emotional health, your physical health, your mental health is at risk. Something needs to change or things are going to go bad real quick. And so... We get really messy with all these different ways that we present, whether it's with substance use or mm -hmm. extreme family conflict or all of the different ways that tons of people um, try and get those needs met. But when we boil it down, it's the emotions, it's the unmet needs, it's the belief systems that we can all relate to. And it's from there that we empathize and we get support and we get validation. And so I really want to go back to that, re that regardless of where you're on on that spectrum, 
I really just kind of like to get rid of all the different ways we present because it's the core emotions and beliefs that connect us and that allow us to get support and that allow us to relate to one another and get the help that we need. And the rest of it really doesn't. And so regardless of where you're at in your mental health journey and what you've experienced, um, I really encourage you to have that self-validation, whether it's with depression or anxiety or what you've gone through, because you don't need to get to a certain point to need that support. You don't need to get bad enough to need therapy or to ask for help or to say that something's not right. Like that's somewhere where I think we're really lacking as a society. But back to your question about snapping out of it, there's a lot of different things there that we can unpack. I think the first thing that you can do to get yourself through that is practice a lot of self-validation. Hearing that you need to snap out of it when you're deeply struggling and suffering is really invalidating. And when yeah. you hear that over a long period of time, it's chronically invalidating and really like little t traumatic. It's, it's not something that gets your needs met and helps you move in the right direction. So if you can cultivate the validation of being like, I'm struggling right now, and that's really tough. And what I'm hearing is that I don't deserve to be struggling and that I shouldn't be struggling, but it's okay that I am. That's where I'm at right now. And I'm going to create space for that for myself and accept that that's where I'm at and that that's okay. Um, so if you can kind of acknowledge that for yourself and give yourself the validation that you're not getting from others, I think that's a really powerful first step. And if it's, you can't get that validation for yourself. I think pursuing something like therapy to get that validation is really helpful. I think if you're not feeling seen or heard or acknowledged for what you're going through, it's really hard to move past that point because unless we realize that there's a problem where we acknowledge the root cause, you're never going to be able to change that. So I really do think that validation is the first step to recovery and healing and eventually snapping out of it, even though there's like not a snapping out of it, it's slow and steady progress. Yeah. Um, so whether you can cultivate that for yourself or get professional support or have a really great friend that can help you navigate that and help you feel seen and supported um, or a different family member that does get what you're going through. I think that's a really key first step. From there, there's a lot of different coping skills that you can implement. I think a common thread in my journey and almost everyone's journey is that if you're trying to get better and heal and recover and change for extrinsic reasons, it's going to be really short-lived. You're trying to get better because you have a deadline for work or because people are telling you, snap out of it, you shouldn't feel this way. It's going to be really short-lived. Maybe you can get to work more often on time. Maybe you're not in bed as much. Maybe you're crying less, but you're going to revert because you're not doing it because you want to get better or because you have enough self-compassion to get better. And so regardless of what you try, if it's not coming from an intrinsic point, it's not going to work. So the self-validation piece is really key to cultivate enough compassion and willingness to want to get better for yourself and not for anyone else. From there, there's a couple of small like mental health shifts and tips that I would recommend that universally are helpful. The first one is sleep. I think it's something that really kind of get swept under the rug. We have this mentality all over our culture that like sleep isn't that important. It's a nice thing to have. Like it doesn't have that big of an impact on us. And that's not the case. Like sleep is crucial to our physical health, our mental health, every single thing you're doing, sleep is required to rest and rejuvenate and repair your body. So if you can get your sleep on track, you are exponentially reducing your emotional vulnerability. You're able to process through emotions from the previous day. You're able to enter the next day feeling less stressed. You're less likely to experience your emotions as intensely. It's just a key piece to being able to function as a better version of yourself. And sleep is something that tends to struggle when you're struggling with depression, anxiety, mental health challenges. Like it's one of the go-to symptoms um, that they list, which is that your sleep is disrupted. You're having more or less sleep than normal. So getting that on track is a great point to start. And if you're struggling with stigma, either from other people or yourself, that's a really easy thing to start with because you can be like, oh, it's for my physical health. Like, oh, it's because I want to not be tired during the day or I want to try and drink less coffee. Like, it's really easy to explain away without being like, I'm really trying to invest in my mental health. And I know that you might not get that, but this is important to me. So sleep is something that everyone needs everyone gets that it's something you need to work on and it'll exponentially help your mental health. Um 
The next thing that I would say is the community aspect. It's again, going back to that validation piece, surrounding yourself by people with people that help you feel loved, seen, supported, respected, and understood is crucial. Um, it helps you feel more energized rather than depleted from your interactions, and it will really help you feel supported along your healing journey. So whether that's friends, family members, professionals, that's another step that I would take to try and build relationships where you really do feel seen. And then the third thing that I would say, which is a super simple tip, but I think it has a profound effect is accumulating positives. And this is a skill that comes from dialectical behavioral therapy, which is what um, I received during my time at residential, but it's a, a skill where you plan moments of joy. So the key part is intentionally planning them in advance. So say you're getting ready to go to bed and you're like, I can already feel a little bit of depression creeping on. I'm not excited about tomorrow. I have this giant work meeting coming up and I'm dreading it. I just feel gross. You're going to say, okay, I'm going to plan some moments of joy for tomorrow. I'm going to make my favorite cup of coffee in the morning and I'm going to sit and enjoy it. And I'm going to get lunch with my friend at work and we're going to have a great time talking. And then at night, I'm going to watch The Office and laugh and really enjoy that experience. And then the next day, you're going to go through those moments of joy. You're going to accumulate those positives. And then when you do get to those lows that everyone experiences, they're unavoidable. You don't get into that headspace of everything sucks. I have nothing going for me because you've accumulated these positives. So it really like decreases the distance between these highs and these lows that you experience. And it's something really simple. You're probably already implementing it, but it's also a fun skill. It's something that you enjoy doing. Um, and it's an easy thing to implement. So I think if you can get your sleep on track, if you can build healthy relationships and you start planning more moments of joy, that'll really be the first pieces of your life worth living. And it'll put you on a good trajectory to snap out of it or improve your mental health. Um, and if we're not progressing, we're digressing. So if you can at least put yourself on the path of progressing, you're going the right way and it'll compound over time. It's just taking those first steps. That's so difficult. I always say positivity is a choice. And as someone that is obviously interviewing you, we came from a place where we were so far not in the best mindset that it really took. I mean, for me, it was like medication, but that's why I believe so much in taking care of the internal so that the external displays that. And I think to take that a step further for me, it was like, I do a lot of meditation, but working out was the one thing that completely changed my entire mental health. And it was finding that release and just finding that balance. I mean, for me, sports was always that thing. So when I lost that, I had to replace it. But, and that's something that even today, when people ask like, how are you co so consistent with working out or meditation? It's like, because I, it's mental health for me. It's the way yeah, that I You're release. planning those moments that feel good and you're incorporating them into your life on a daily basis and it compounds over time. 1000%. And I believe wholeheartedly, I mean, I will take this to the grave, but I always tell people, I'm like, if you're in a place, what are you doing? Where's your energy? Who are you sharing that with? Exactly what you're saying. And what are you choosing every day when you wake up? And I know when you're in such a dark place, you don't see yourself out of it. So it's easy for me now to say like, wake up and choose positivity. But I do feel like when you're putting one foot in front of the other, and it's just setting an intention each morning of, I'm going to have moments where it's not going to go my direction, but whether it's a cup yeah. of coffee, maybe it's a dog, whatever it is, I think it's just finding joy in those small movements. And you're right, they do compound. And then yeah. here you are a few years later with a successful podcast and you're sharing and providing a mission and bringing joy to other people's ears. So it's crazy to think that those small, or not small moments, but those really transformational moments in your life have brought you to where you are and just you look back and there's probably a part of you that's like, I wish I didn't go through that. But there's also, I'm you know, sure there's a part of you that's like, I've never been so grateful that I went through that because now I have something that provides me yeah. so much joy. Absolutely. And I love what you said about the choice. Like that goes back to the intrinsic motivation. Like when you're choosing to plan moments of joy, to be positive for yourself, that's when that long lasting change occurs. If you're like, oh, I'm going to go through the steps and meditate because someone's telling me to, or because I think it'll work, or because this is what I feel I have to do to live up to the society's standard of being happy and functioning well, 
it's short-lived. So making those choices for yourself is so powerful and it's what leads to the long-lasting results that everyone strives for. You grew up in the social media where social media was building and growing to be where it is now. I personally feel, and this is just an opinion for everyone out there listening, but I personally feel that I don't know how I would have grown up with social media just at your fingertips. I have seen more adolescents around your age go through mental health issues. And for me, I don't want to blame social media, but I think it has a large part. Do you have an opinion or scientific proof or anything for people out there listening uh, from your journey? Do you feel that social media affected you negatively? And do you feel that there's other people out there that you've either talked to or you've helped that are dealing with depression because of the comparison that social media offers? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We know that the statistics say that... uh, social media consumption, being on the Instagram, utilizing these platforms increases rates of depression and anxiety um, and in general mental health challenges. Like that's what the data says. It's what science is telling us. It's a fact that can't be avoided. I think it really goes back to those norms. Like when I was struggling, my norm was that everything sucked all the time and I would never experience anything different. So for me and Gen Z that's growing up with social media being a norm, we've never known anything different. So I don't think it has that like devastating impact of like, wow, this has really changed my life a lot because it's all we've ever known. With that being said, we know what the data says. We know that it's not great for us. We know that it's causing a lot of grievances for our mental health. So where do we go from there? And I think that is where being a critical consumer comes in and you have a lot of power um, as a consumer to create a positive user experience on social media for yourself. So that means following people that make you feel better, that make you feel good, that put a smile on your face. I like to joke and I'll literally show you that my explore page is all nail videos because I love nail videos. Like this is my explore page on my Instagram. It's only nail videos because that's what makes me happy. And I'm like, oh, this is so fun. This makes me feel so relaxed. So when I'm going on Instagram, that's what I like to do. And so it's really being a critical consumer and being like, does following this person make me feel better or does it make me feel worse? If it makes you feel worse, unfollow them. And if it's someone that you know, mute them, make their post stop showing up in your feed. Um, And it's really that simple. And again, you have to decide that for yourself. You have to want to change that user experience. You have the power to, and it's something that's very, very possible for you to do. I think, again, I want to narrow back in on the idea that if you don't observe and acknowledge that there's a problem going on, you're never going to change or shift something. So it's really a lot of observation and internal exploration being like, is social media a positive experience for me? Or is it really negative and hurting my self-esteem? Or like TikTok, is it something that is a great distraction? Or is it a huge time suck that takes all of my time away from school? And it's really just that awareness piece. And then you can make changes as necessary. So maybe it's using a time limit. Maybe it's deleting it from your phone. Whatever it is that you need, um, it's setting those boundaries for yourself. But I I think people forget how much power we have as consumers. Mm-hmm. Like when you open the Instagram account app, you're choosing who to follow. You're choosing who shows up in your feed. You're choosing how much time you spend on the app. And you can use that for positive or for negative. So following people that make you feel really good, that boost your mood. And I think another thing that I can't speak highly of enough is using social media from a creative perspective especially with the podcast, being on social media is something that really allows me to explore different passions and creativity. So especially on the podcast account, I am constantly looking for other creators for inspiration. I'm admiring what they're doing. I'm like, wow, this person is so driven. I'm so impressed by their hustle. Like that's really the relationship I have with social media there. And so if you are someone that likes art, make an art account, use social media to showcase your talent, use it to connect with like-minded individuals. Um, If you're someone who loves podcasting, create social media accounts for your podcast. If you really love movies, make a movie review TikTok. Like I think using social media from a creative perspective is something that's really powerful that tons of people are doing, but it's not the norm. Like the norm is using it from like a personal consumption perspective, but that's another shift you can make um, to kind of change your relationship to the platform. But it all goes back to being a critical consumer and really just asking yourself, does this help or hurt my mental health? 
okay, it hurts it, it's gone. It helps it. Okay, great. Let's leave it around. So yeah. I think it's hard as when you're in that adolescent age to really, you made a really good point of you don't know any different. And I think that could be carried into what they're consuming when you're, I know when I was young, you don't, you don't have the self-awareness yet and you don't know who you are to say this is affecting me positively and this is affecting me negatively. So I do feel that that's one thing that I know just from people that have kids that are struggling with mental health and stuff like that, that they're dealing with. Cause it's like, as a parent, you're trying to help guide your kids, but they aren't, most of them aren't in a place where they can understand that and identify that this video is not making me feel great and this isn't. So I do think it's, you know, as you grow and as you get older and just recognizing where you're at. Another question for you is what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions about mental health? There's so many. There's so, (laughs) so, so many. I think one that's really universally true not not universally true but universally believed is that idea of the mental health spectrum that you're not bad enough or it hasn't gotten bad enough to need support and that's why i always break it down to that spectrum of emotions we all experience depression we all experience anxiety it's just to a different degree you don't have to get to a certain benchmark to need therapy you don't have to get to a certain benchmark to have to ask for help or to start looking for resources just like with your physical health you're not going to start working out regularly and eating healthy when you get cancer, you're going to do it your entire life to try and avoid that. Same thing for your mental health. You're not going to wait to you. You're not going to wait to educate yourself about mental health and practice using coping skills and be surrounded by resources until you're hospitalized. Like I was, I'm a very bad example there. You're going to start to listen to podcasts that make you feel better. You're going to be a critical consumer on social media. You're going to surround yourself by people that make you feel good. All these little baby steps that set you up for success. And so I think really um, that's a very strong belief that a lot of people hold is that their mental health isn't bad enough. It's not like other people is not to that point. Why would you ever compare your mental health to someone else's? Because you'll never experience what their life is like. Mm-hmm. Like we do have this very self-centered view on the world. Why on earth would you be like, well, my mental health isn't like theirs? You are never going to be in their head knowing what that feels like. So there's no point in comparing your mental health to theirs. So I think really changing your relationship to how you look at resources and how you kind of view that. Um, and maybe that means using therapy as a preventative measure. Maybe that means using therapy to just feel better about your mental health in general. Maybe that means listening to podcasts to educate yourself about mental health. All of these little baby steps that um, compound over time. But I think if we can really get rid of that idea of, oh, well, it's not bad enough yet, that therapy is for people that are really struggling. I'm not really struggling. I think that's something that's really toxic that prevents a lot of people from getting the help they need. I think there's so many mental health myths out there. There's people that say, oh, snap out of depression, just go on a walk. Like those are all toxic things that are not necessarily true. Yeah. If you can go on a walk, that will help your mental health, but it's not going to cure you from feeling depressed for years at a time. I'm trying to think of what are some other really common ones that I've been hearing recently. Um, I think another thing that people are really wrapped up in right now is the question about self-diagnosing. People are really anti-self-diagnosers. I get this question on podcasts all the time of like, what are your thoughts on self-diagnosing? Should teens be self-diagnosing? And I'm kind of like, who cares? Like if someone is labeling themselves as having anxiety, does that hurt you? Like, how does that impact your life at all? Diagnoses are built into the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, to give the criteria for when and how people need medical treatment for their mental health challenges. If someone is at home and tells you that they have anxiety and labels themselves with that, that's not going to impact if they're given a Xanax prescription unless they're clinically diagnosed by a professional. Like, I don't think there's any harm to people labeling what they're experiencing internally. So that's another one where people are like, self-diagnosing is bad. You can only be diagnosed by a professional. That's another thing that I think is going around social media a lot right now. I think medication is something that is still very taboo. And the idea of needing to be medicated is a myth in itself that like, you're really struggling. And I think that 
that's not necessarily true. That's again, something that we need to break down. If you're taking medication to make sure that your blood pressure is correct, someone's not going to be like, wow, oh my God, she's having a heart attack every three seconds. Like that's, those two things don't equivalent. So if you're taking an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety med to help you perform with the best version of yourself and get rid of that emotional vulnerability, that doesn't directly translate to this person's extremely unstable. So that's another myth that I feel like is floating around a lot and that people carry that misconception. Yeah. And I think you hit on a really important point of everyone's journey is different. We always talk about how comparison is the thief of joy. And I even did it just in this episode of like, I'm comparing my story to yours and not validating where I was. And I just think I'm someone that tries to empathize, but I'm also someone which I'm I'm self-aware enough now to know that I'm very much like I'm very hard on myself. So I do think that there's a lot of people I'm sure out there that could resonate with like you think highly of yourself or you don't want to be in that place. And so it's like, you're just putting pressure on yourself to get to a different outcome. You're like, why am I not there? Like, what can I do differently instead of just acknowledging and being like, Hey, this is where I'm at. If I need help, I need help. And there's an other side of this and not putting too much pressure on yourself to be somewhere where you're not. Everyone's journey is different. And again, not comparing yourself, even though it's easy, especially with all the resources and stuff we have out now. I think Mm -hmm. it's super easy to be like, oh, well, I'm here and she's here. So maybe mine's not as bad. So I don't need to go get the help when in reality, Mm -hmm. so far from the truth. Exactly. And I think I really like what you said about comparison is the thief of joy. Like if we go back to the situation where you're like, oh, well, my mental health wasn't like yours. Not to like fault you at all for having that thought because I do that all the time. Like, where does that get you? How is that helping? (laughs) It's just not. And so like when we all catch ourselves in that, when we're like, oh, well, my mental health isn't like that. Oh, well, I'm not performing like that at work or my social media doesn't look like that. Like X, Y, and Z. We have these comparisons all day long, every single day. Just take a minute to be like, what is this doing for me? Is this helping? Nope. Okay. I'm going to stop now. (laughs) And then practice a little self-validation and put that there to kind of boost back your mood. But we these norms get built into our life and we don't think to question them. Questioning them, taking a moment to reflect on them and then deciding if you want to change them or not is a really powerful tool that you can implement. The power of self-reflection. I think building self-awareness and really understanding who you are as a person is one of the biggest keys in life. And I think if we talked about that more as a society, I think we would be in a lot different place of just who am I as a person? What do I like? Instead of putting so much emphasis on this person's doing this, this person, I think we care and not in a, you know, negative way, but I just think we care a lot about what other people are doing, which is fine. But at the same time, it's like, who am I? I think we're so used to people telling us who we are that we lose sight of like what actually makes me who I am, Mm -hmm. which I want to talk a little bit on your podcast. So you've built an entire business around your story and your journey, which I think, again, I'm going to applaud you on that is incredible. There's a lot of people who wouldn't do what you're doing or wouldn't have the confidence or wouldn't be vulnerable vulnerable enough to share their stories. So share with the audience your vision, why the podcast, I think we kind of hinted at it a little bit, yeah. um, and why you really wanted to big, build a business to help save other people and share your story to serve. Yeah, it, it didn't feel like an option to not share my story once I was on that other side. And I think I use that kind of language a lot, like on the other side of things, just like your physical health, your mental health is a lifelong journey. Every single day I'm doing things to maintain my mental health and continue on that upward trajectory. So first that disclaimer that like, I'm not like, okay, I'm healed, recovered, no work on my mental health ever. Like the podcast in itself is a way that I'm constantly investing and learning more about my mental health and mental health in general. But when I realized that I was living the life worth living that I thought was never possible, I knew I had to share my story, what worked, all of these different things. And I went back to the idea my dad had about the podcast. And I was like, okay, this kind of feels like a weird idea. Like this was two or three years ago, like having a podcast felt like a really nerdy thing to do. It was a little, little bit weird, but I was like, everyone is on Instagram. I don't really want to blog. Every single teenager has a YouTube channel. This is kind of a niche that doesn't feel super crowded yet. And so I started the podcast and... For the first 
year, I didn't share it with friends or family members. My immediate family knew, of course, my very close friends did, but I had this really amazing container to learn how to tell my mental health story in a way that I was really proud of. And so I got to use a lot of trial and error and get through the learning curve of how to podcast, which is no joke, like editing and interviewing is hard. (laughs) People don't talk about that a lot, but like the beginning episodes were so bad. Um, But I was really able to learn how to tell my mental health story in a way that helped others and that was inspirational and encouraging and that I felt good about and then share it with everyone in my community. Um, And so it really didn't feel like an option to not share my story. I, I knew I had to and I wanted to. And it's interesting. I didn't really think that I would go into the mental health profession. And it was only after I had the podcast for about a year and I started doing college applications. And I was like, what do I want to major in? And at first I was like, I want to help people. I'll be a doctor. And then I was like, I hate chemistry and science. This is not going to work out very well for me. Um, And I realized that I was spending hours every single week talking about mental health, exploring mental health um, and sharing my own story. And I was just super, super passionate about that. And so it became really apparent to me that that was what I wanted to do with my life. And so I'm at Penn now studying psychology um, to become a clinical psychologist. But the podcast was a way that I could start making a difference, start sharing my story and start helping others um, without needing all of that crazy education and accreditations and clinical practice, which takes decades to get to. The other thing with the podcast, you kind of touched on this, how I did go through a lot and that a lot of people wouldn't choose to, to share that journey. For me, when I was going through it, it sucked. I didn't understand why I was going through so many challenges, why I was suffering so much, why I was going through all this crazy treatment and and all of these emotions that were so overwhelming. But as soon as I started the podcast, and as soon as I started to hear that it was helping others, it was all worth it. And I wouldn't change a moment of it because I was allowing, and not I was allowing, I was preventing someone else from going through what I did. And so it was immediately worth it. And it was immediately made sense. I had that sense of purpose. I had that huge passion and it all really made sense. Um, and so it, it really was like an internal calling that there was no like, oh, I won't share my story. Like, I feel like I had to, I needed to, I had this internal drive and it was really just how am I going to do that? And I fell in love with podcasting and everything behind that, whether it's the graphic design, the social media, the web design, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and it, it all feels worth it. It all feels aligned. It all feels like this is what I'm meant to be doing. Um, and I think that's something really cool to look back on and see the trajectory of. I love that. And you're really talented at social media too. So I do feel like you found, I always say that if you find something that you're really good at and you're passionate about the sky is the limit. And I'm going to steal, I stole that quote from one of my mentors, Mike, but he said the exact same thing. He's like, if you can find something that you're talented at that comes natural to you and something that you're passionate about, the world is your oyster. And I think a lot of us spend a lot of time working hard. And I've done this in very many areas of my life, working hard towards something that maybe it doesn't come naturally to you, or maybe you're not that passionate about. And I'm with you. And then I feel like I found a platform that I'm passionate about. I have talent in And it's like, just lean into that inner calling and lean into that inner knowing. As we begin to wrap this up, I want to be respectful of time. Are there resources that I'll put all of this in the notes as well that you want to leave the audience with of maybe they just want to learn more about it, or maybe they're in a similar situation as you and they're like, what can I learn or what are some tangible things that I can go out and read to help me in where I'm at in my life? Yeah. There is an endless list of resources for mental health. There are so many talented clinicians, podcasters, authors, social media personalities that are sharing mental health tips and tricks. So there's never going to be a shortage. You can always find things that are that meet you where you're at. Um, There's a couple of things. I think one that doesn't get mentioned often enough and that I felt I was lacking in my journey was researching what your life can look like. We get so encapsulated in these norms of the life we're living, we forget that like, oh, I could be happier. I could feel more inspired. I could feel more driven. I could feel more motivated. Like we don't even think about researching what our lives can look like and building goals for how we want to shift how we feel. And so listening to podcasts, reading books about how people are feeling and experiencing the world and habits they have in their life, I think creating a life worth living to work towards is something really powerful and a resource you can implement in your journey. So 
just getting curious, whether you're scrolling on social media, whether you're reading a book, being like, does this sound good to me? Like, is this something I want to work towards? Does this feel aligned in my life worth living? How can I get to that point? Um, there are tons and tons and tons of hiccups. <laughs> there are so many books um, about mental health that are extremely powerful. I think Brene Brown is a great place to start. Oh, love her. Um, she has so many books. Vulnerability is something that everyone and anyone can resonate with, can benefit from learning about. It's relevant to all of our relationships. So I think that's somewhere that's kind of like a very like entry level. I want to learn more. She explains anything and everything. I love Johan Hari's books, especially Lost Connections. It talks about the environmental impacts on depression and anxiety. So how you can change your environment to improve your mood. And all of his books are very evidence-based. He brings in the studies. He tells you the data in a way that's very digestible. So it's not like you're like, oh, this person went through this. They said meditation helped them. Let me implement that. He's like, this is the data that shows that meditation helped these 30,000 people. That's why I implemented it in my life. It's really that kind of thing, which I think is very, very powerful. Um, there are endless podcasts that you can dive into as well. Um, I think Cleaning Up the Mental Mess by Dr. Caroline Leaf is a great one because, again, it's so evidence-based. You know that the information you're getting is the best of the best. Um, I really love um, Scout Sobel from OKSIS. I think she's an amazing individual. She struggled with bipolar, and now she talks a lot about how emotions and entrepreneurship intersect. Um, and it's, again, in a very digestible way that you can relate with. Um, I am a production assistant on a podcast called Recovering from Reality. So I listen to every single one of those episodes. And um, I love that show as well for mental health. Um, and of course, you can listen to my podcast as well. It's called She Persisted. It's on all platforms. All the episodes are about things mental health. And there's really something for everyone there that you can dive into. Um, but there's there's no limit. It's really just kind of being like, where do I want to learn more? What feels like it resonates with me? And who are the experts in the field in that area? Like at the beginning of my journey, meditation was something that I wasn't implementing. It wasn't really aligned with me. So I would never go out and read a book on meditation. I was reading books about navigating anxiety and increasing compassion to decrease com depression, things like that. So you don't need to subscribe to what society or other creators are telling you you need to implement. It's really what feels good to you. And it's trial and error. And it's implementing different practices into your life and really researching what you want your life to look like and how you can get to that point. I love that. So many good things. And I'll put a lot of that in the notes. I just wrote down the Lost Connection books. I need it's to so good. Yeah, start reading more. So thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Everything you said was, I, I know I learned a lot. And I think, especially in today's world, there's going to be a lot of people that will resonate with your journey and with your story. I'll put everything where to find her. She's great at social media. So if you need any sort of creative inspiration, I know I stalk hers a lot because your girl Aww. is not good at social media. So <laughs> self-awareness there. It's a learning curve. Yeah. It's all a learning curve. Yeah, it's definitely not my uh, what I'm good at. But the final question for you is, what are you grateful for today, Sadie? So many things. Right now, randomly, I'm really grateful for the California weather. I'm going back to Philly like tomorrow, and we're already getting emails about how it's 12 degrees and the pipes are freezing. So I'm looking outside and seeing the sun, and I'm like, this is a really nice thing. I love this. I took this for granted for years, and it's something that just lets you go outside and take a nice walk and watch the dogs play outside. And it's something that um, I literally just like forgot to appreciate. So that's something that I'm grateful for today, but always grateful for family and friends and the podcast and listeners and just so many endless things. But right now, the weather. <laughs> I love that. I am grateful for my health. I know I talk about this a lot, but I yeah. just feel like it's something after being sick. Granted, yeah, yeah, we take for granted. I know my mom just got sick this week. So it's just something that I am so grateful for. And thank you again for coming on the podcast. Yeah. It was great having you.